The Last Word with Matt Cooper. Today FM. It all happens here. Today's Irish Examiner reported unnamed senior government figures as warning that families could be forced to abandon their second car if higher level carbon emission targets for the agriculture sector cannot be agreed. Now, just before we start talking about that, Professor Peter Thorne, climatologist at Maynooth University, I understand that you believe yesterday may actually have been the hottest day uh, recorded in Irish history. Not this day from Kilkenny in 1887. Why is that? So we gave our master's students a couple of years ago uh, an assignment where they looked at this afresh. Um, There's very little known about the Kilkenny record. Um, We don't have a continuous series for that record and we don't have a way of verifying it um, in an absolute sense. When you compare it to a large number or a number of stations that were in existence at the time around the country, it's very large difference to them. And when you look at modern era, looking at the Kilkenny um, city site that's now there in Greensill, um, it's a real outlier. It just does not seem physically plausible that Kilkenny was that warm on that day. It was certainly very warm, but I don't believe the 33.3 is correct. Um, And if that's incorrect, then the warmest temperature that was reliably measured prior to yesterday would be 32.5 degrees at Borough in County Offaly, which has just been toppled if that is the case. But I would stress that the decision on this quite rightly rests with the Met, Met Air and Met Service. Okay, and these figures, the temperature we achieved in Ireland yesterday are reached rather than achieved what they're experiencing in the UK yesterday. There are people, climate change deniers, who would say this is just natural part of progression of climate. What do you say? Is this down to man-made carbon emissions? It's undoubtedly down to man-made carbon emissions. There can be no doubt we've looked at so many of these heatwave events over the past decade and repeatedly again and again they've been found to be more intense more likely due to human influence upon the climate system. So it's beyond any doubt at all. And that's why the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, concluded as much in its recent report last summer. Okay. now the Irish Examiner, as I said this morning, reported that if the agriculture sector doesn't agree to higher carbon emission targets, The alternatives could be things like families being required to abandon their second car. What do you make of that? So fundamentally, we are constrained both by our national legislation calling for a 51% reduction in emissions and by the EU Fit for 55 to reduce our emissions by roughly half by 2030. Now, the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, in its Working Group 3 report earlier this year made very, very clear that that's doable globally, and I believe that's doable nationally. But it's at the edge of what's possible, and it requires every sector of society to pull its weight in a pretty fundamental way to get it to that level. So it's massively ambitious, and the trouble if you start giving leeway to any sector. In this case, we're discussing the agriculture sector, but we could be discussing giving leeway, for example, to the transport sector. The implication would be the same. All the other sectors have to pick up that slack. 
And the trouble is that as you pick up more and more slack, that slack becomes more and more expensive. It's very easy, for example, in the energy sector to install a lot of solar and wind that will get us a long way. But when you start talking about needing to do the energy sector that much quicker, you start getting into really expensive solutions that will add lots of money to everyone's energy bill. Similarly, in transport, as the government said, or the, the government officials said anonymous, anonymously, you would get into some pretty tricky situations around needing to either ration transport car use or mandate getting rid of internal combustion engine cars or very highly polluting cars. Um, if we're going to meet these targets, we have to find a way to do so, and it becomes considerably harder if any given sector has is given too easy a time over it. I want to bring in Geraldine Herbert, who is the motoring editor of the Sunday Independent. Geraldine, we asked you earlier today to join us on the programme. You t- took to Twitter to say you would be discussing this topic. Tell us the type of response you got. I have to say, overwhelming. It was overwhelmingly, uh, Matt. It was incredibly negative. People were outraged at the idea of this. I think it was the way I phrased it I, as well. I said that the, the, you know that families could be forced to do without a second car, and the idea of forcing people. I've never seen anything quite like it in the last while. Anyway, so yeah, it, there was there was a huge response. As I said, overwhelmingly negative. Geraldine, it struck me. It was almost. It went in some cases from people saying, "If you take our second car, you'll be taking our second child next." It was almost Trumpian in its response. Almost like you were going to take an AK-47 off an American taking the car. But in fairness, maybe there is a difference that needs to be drawn between people in rural Ireland where there is not the public transport and urban settings where maybe there are many families with two, even more cars, where they're not perhaps necessarily needed because of the access that families have to public transport. Yeah, I think there is there is a difference there. And unfortunately, these kind of suggestions do kind of heighten that urban and rural divide. But I think we really need to look at those people who actually do require a second car. And it's mainly down to decades of poor planning and bad um, policy that has increased our car dependency. And even now, when we're aware of the damage that that has done and we're aware of the, the emission targets that we have to reach, we're still constructing these large scale housing developments designed around car usage around the country. Most of our town centres are empty and we're building retail parks accessible only by car. So we really need to, you know, to to address these issues before we start thinking that by simply removing a second car, we're going to solve the problem. We're not. These are the factors that are creating this situation. What said that Professor Peter Thorne from Maynooth University, that there's an awful lot of planning for other things that would have to be done before we could ever ask people to give up second or third cars in their families? Well, in, in, indeed, I would I would agree, and that's why it's so difficult to to ask some sectors to do things. I mean, we will have to reach net zero by twenty fifty um, if we're to try and keep warming below one and a half degrees and avoid the worst impacts of climate change. We know we can get there on that timescale. The trouble with putting undue pressure on individual sectors to get there that much quicker is you do end up in these really, really challenging circumstances that will have hugely negative impacts upon sectors of society. So we need to plan this and do this properly. And we need to recognize that we need to take the easy wins early and the challenging ones will need time to get right. Geraldine Herbert, are there any any statistics available to let us know how many two-car or multi-car families we actually have in the country? 
No, I don't have those to hand, but I would imagine it's fairly substantial. But again, I would imagine if you look at it, it's rural and urban divide. And the other thing, though, Matt, if I could just say just in terms of infrastructure and how we plan these things, if we look at the Netherlands and they have world leading high quality cycling infrastructure and yet 60 percent of all of their trips to work are made by car and only a quarter by bicycle. Now, you'd have to ask yourself why in a country where it's so safe to cycle do people not? And they don't because their journeys are getting longer and longer. And we have exactly the same situation. Our housing policy at the moment and our our lack of um, housing is pushing people further and further away from where they want to live and where they work. And all of these things are contributing to why people are car dependent. And yet we still manage to see transport and housing as two separate, you know, two separate policies and two separate um, um, considerations. These are things we need to look at. It's not just simply about getting people out of their cars. It's about making journeys shorter. When people have amenities on their doorstep, they are not car dependent. But yet, Professor Peter Thorne, there's also an argument that if you do put more and more people into cities, if you don't have suitable green spaces, that in itself also tends to push up temperatures. Yes, so we the urban heat island is is an aspect that that we have solutions to, and it's partly it's partly that it's partly things like painting roofs white, which they do in many areas. Of, of the world of the world it's about um, ventilating our properties and making them fit for purpose if we're going to see and we are going to see more and more extremes like we've seen in the last couple of days we do need to make sure that buildings are habitable in those kind of conditions you look at uh, spain italy france they have that infrastructure down to a t and we just need to learn from what's being done there and improve the situation but we need to plan things properly we we need to get this right we have an opportunity for a more just and equitable Ireland in 2030 2050 but it's only if it's done right and there are many benefits potentially above and beyond climate to this action Okay, this listener says, oh, whose fault is climate change? Please tell me, is there anything to do with the amount of rockets and satellites been sent up into space? Oh, cows farting and washing machines on too hot? It's all bull. And why is it so hot in the Canaries or Africa? You're getting worse with all your bull mat. Blah, blah, and it goes on after that. But I suppose it is a point, Professor Peter Thorne, is that everyone seems to say, well... It's not what I'm doing, it's what somebody else is doing. Or if it's not agriculture, there are other things that are far more to blame. Surely it's an accumulation of a whole load of things that all have to be changed. Well, indeed, it's an accumulation of all of our activities that emit principally carbon dioxide. And it's important to stress that carbon dioxide is the greenhouse gas that needs to be reduced to net zero. Uh, Methane nitrous oxide and a new number of other activities that we undertake are causing this climate change and it's unequivocal is the word that's used in the intergovernmental panel on climate change that this is happening and that's important that it's in that document because that's the document signed off by every government in the world and i think we have to recognize that there's a huge status quo bias people cannot imagine the alternative uh, and we need to have in leaders showing us, inspiring leaders showing us what is possible, that it is still possible to have a very low or indeed a zero carbon lifestyle. And it doesn't mean that you fundamentally alter your lifestyle overall. 
it's small changes here and there, but it's about the choices of what you use, how you get about, where you go on holiday, a whole host of things that we will have to work very hard over a sustained period of time to get right. Geraldine Herbert, what are the up-to-date targets for getting people to move across to electric cars? Well, I mean, we're, st- we're, we're seeing every, uh, you know, every month more electric cars being sold. As we've discussed in this programme before, though, we don't have the supply of new electric cars at the moment. There is a great willingness by, by motorists at the moment to make the change, particularly with fuel costs the way they are. But there isn't a decent enough secondhand market to provide options for people on various different budgets. And those on new car budgets could be waiting anywhere between six to nine months. So, I mean, that's, that's not, you know, it's not a particularly good way. And we could actually see us not hitting the... the We've been doubling the number of electric cars we sold every year. That may not happen this year simply because there simply isn't the number of cars available to buyers. Uh, one listener is saying the big problem is that the world is simply way overpopulated. Maybe won't go down that particular route. But just to finish, Professor Peter Thorne from Maynooth University, there are a number of listeners who are saying that what ha- is happening here is that the farmers have been pitted against the rest of the population. Not necessarily so, but I suppose the, c- the fact is the government has said previously, agricultural emissions will have to be cut by between 22% and 30% by 2030. We're now hearing that the government is under pressure to to go no further than 22% from its own backbench TDs. So if it only goes to 22%, that does mean that other things are going to have to compensate, doesn't it? Well, uh, yes, as I said, as I said at the at the start of the program, the fundamental thing is that we have a fifty one percent overall budget. If any sector pulls under its weight, it becomes almost impossible for other sectors to achieve that, and there are major cost implications um, uh, that will cascade through society. But you're quite right to say. Uh, it's it's not fit for purpose for us to have discussions endlessly pitting agriculture against it. In one sense, it makes it, in Douglas Adams speak, somebody else's problem to the majority of your listeners. They think agriculture will solve it. Well, no, agriculture won't solve it. Even if agriculture got to net zero somehow tomorrow, we would still be emitting two-thirds of what we emit today. It's everybody's problem and it's everybody's solution. I fundamentally believe in the ingenuity of our farmers if the government and policy and markets can enable it to step up to the plate and make this change. I don't believe that the agriculture sector is fundamentally doing this because they want to harm the climate system or do harm to the environment. I think they're doing it because they don't feel they've got uh, got another option and because they feel that they've been pushed by policy in the market into the place they're in. We need to support our farmers in a just transition um, to get us to the place we need to be. Professor Peter Thorne, climatologist at Maynooth University and Geraldine Herbert, motoring editor with the Sunday Independent. Thank you. The Last Word with Matt Cooper. Weekdays from 4.30. Today and-